Today on a special episode, we'll be discussing the concept of brain death and the Archie Battersby case. This is Doctor versus Comedian. of Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, what I normally do is I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. But today we have a special episode where we'll be discussing the concept of brain death and the Archie Badgersby case in the UK. Yeah, and you might be here as a regular listener waiting for the entertainment section to start first. We won't be doing that because of the serious nature of this topic of brain death. We decided to just go right to the medical topic and forego an entertainment topic. We didn't decide. Asif decided. And I agreed with Asif that you don't need any of my goofball antics. Well, we're talking about something this serious. Okay, Asif, you're a neurologist. Obviously, this is stuff that is important to you, but it is also very much in the news and, you know, a heavy conversation in parts of, you know, the world. This has attracted global attention, this idea of brain death and what it is. You want to talk about this case of uh, Archie Battersby first? Let's talk a bit about his case because I think it helps to illustrate some of the problems with the average person's understanding of brain death and some of the other controversies that come out. So basically, Ali, you've read about this case, right? In the news. I have. 12-year-old boy Archie Battersby from Southend in Essex in England. On April 7th, he was found unconscious by his mother uh, with a ligature over his head, so a rope of, of some kind. She thinks that he was taking part in this blackout challenge on TikTok. Have you heard about this? Where I have people video themselves, you know, passing out essentially and put it on their phone. So maybe she, that didn't really come out. It's she, that's what she said that happened. But I don't I mean, obviously, maybe she had evidence that he was filming himself or something like that. But that hasn't really come out, obviously. Like no one's going to video, I'm sure it's never going to come out if there was a video. So it's unclear how long he was kind of down for. We use that in quotation marks in medicine, like how long he was pulseless and. With a cardiac arrest, she did CPR, called an ambulance. He went to a local hospital and they said, yes, he suffered cardiac arrest. And he finally got circulation back about 40 minutes, they estimate, after his mother found him unconscious. He was without oxygen. Yeah. His brain would have been without oxygen for 40 minutes. 40 minutes minutes at least, because we don't know how long he was without oxygen until the mother found him, right? So at least 40 minutes. And then so the thought is that he sustained brain damage. During this cardiac arrest, because you have lack of oxygen and blood flow to the brain, that's going to cause brain injury. So then he was transferred to another hospital, and the physicians there said that he was brain stem dead. And I'll talk about that definition in a second. But essentially, the family disagreed. They said, you know, his heart is still beating. He is still alive. We want everything done. And they didn't even want the tests for brain stem death to be done. Right. So this is important, right? When their definition of death is different from this particular hospital's definition of death, right? That's where we just right, things but I would start. say it's the the medical community's definition of death. But right, this that is one of the first big things. Right, but but based on the reading you assigned me, I have no entertainment topic, so I did a lot of reading for this. Different states, different regions right. will have different right. So that's why I said this particular hospital. Yep, the UK is slightly different than 
the rest of the world. And we'll talk about that. And they okay. did some other tests. You know, they went to the judge and there was lots of appealing going on over the past few months, April, May, June, July, August of this past year. They wanted to do these brainstem tests to test for whether he's brain dead. They did what's called a nerve stimulation test, which we'll talk about that. And they did an MRI scan. And you'll, if you read kind of the transcripts of what happened, Ali, they'll say after the MRI, they declared him brain dead. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, during this time, April, May, June, there is zero change in Archie Batters' B condition Correct. in a hospital. From my understanding, is. from reading okay. again, you know, again, and this is all supposition, right? Because I'm reading what's in the lay press. I'm reading what's in some of these law briefs that come out. But I, mm-hmm. like, obviously, I don't have access to the physicians, to his chart, anything like that. So this is just my understanding of what. Why do we even have you here? I huh? know. You're supposed to get in there and steal information for our listeners. Anyway, we'll, we'll do with what you have right now. You know, if you read this, a lot of the judges were like, no, 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 like he is dead. You should withdraw care for the family kept appealing, trying to go to higher and higher courts. And then there's some confusing language where they're, he's referred to in a comatose state, but this isn't really a comatose state. Like if you're, if someone's dead, you wouldn't say that they're in a comatose state. You would say that they're dead, right? So, a lot of this is terminology, and I wonder if the judges aren't even using the correct terminology. And then they went all the way up to asking the UN to have an urgent request, but eventually it was decided to withdraw his life-sustaining support in early August. And then It was decided not by the parents. The parents fought it the entire way. Yeah, that's my understanding is that they fought it the entire way. In fact, towards the end, they even argued for him to go to a hospice, like a palliative care place. And that was denied, which is very unusual. I'm not sure why that was denied. I have my suspicions. And it's based on another case we're going to talk about in a second. Right. I mean, if people are trying to establish, and by people, I mean, the medical community is trying to establish that he is dead. And they're not saying clinically or technically or effectively, they're saying he's dead. Why would they put him in hospice care would be their argument, right? Because it's like... Maybe, yeah, maybe that's true. That's true. But, you know, at this point, he would be having a breathing tube and stuff like that to help him breathe. And so why don't you just transfer him and then disconnect it there? We do that all the time for for patients in a similar situation. So I'm not quite sure what was going on there. Like I said, I have my suspicions of what, what the reasons why they may have refused that. They said it wasn't in his best interest to be moved to a hospice, but he has he's dead. You just said that, so... So there's a lot of stuff in here. So let's kind of go over this, Ali, because it, it is kind of an interesting concept. So there are two ways in medicine to be determined to be dead. One is your heart stops beating, right? Like on movies and TV shows, listen for their heart with a stethoscope or just your ear on their chest. Don't hear a heartbeat. Okay, you've died. Try to do CPR. It doesn't work, right? But then there's also this concept of what we call the neurologic determination of death. We're trying to get away from that term brain death and talk about the neurologic determination of death. So what we do is we do various tests on patients looking at the brainstem function. So the brainstem is this very deep part of the brain. In the, it's the part that basically attaches to your spinal cord. So your spinal cord goes up, brainstem, and then it's the rest of your brain with all the convolutions and things like that. And that's the most basic part of the brain, which controls a lot of the functions for breathing, consciousness, and things like that. So if you have injury there, it's felt to not be compatible with with life. Okay, so we do a bunch of tests. And so at the beginning of this Archie Battersby case, 
the doctors wanted to do these brainstem tests. And I'll, I'll tell you what they are, very complicated or anything like that. And the family refused. So that was the first thing that happened. So here's what we do. So we're seeing a patient. The first thing in the rest of the world, there's another criteria in addition to the brainstem injury. There's something where you have to show that there's been what we call a global injury to the rest of the brain. Okay, so in his case, we would say that's a hypoxic injury, lack of oxygen to the brain. It could be a traumatic injury, right? Like you've been in a motor vehicle accident with bleeding in the brain or things like that. Something has to be able to explain damage to the whole brain. That's what most of the world says. And then you also want to go through all these different brainstem reflexes. Interesting, in the UK, they don't have that criteria for having to have a global injury to the rest of the brain. They just care about the brainstem. So that's why when you're reading the Archie Battersby case, they just talk about brainstem death and the rest of the world talks about brain death. Okay. So it's, it's a bit of a small thing, but that's why you're, you're seeing the difference. So what do we do when we see this patient? We do a bunch of things. We try and stimulate them to see if they have any response usually it's like to pain or to pressure or something like that is there any response any movement do we see that are the pupils reactive or do they move at all or are pupils fixed and dilated as we say right so there's no pupillary response that's controlled by the brainstem we do a couple other brainstem tests where we look for the movement of their eyes we stimulate what's called a corneal reflex in their eye and we put ice water into their ears to see if that can stimulate any eye movement and if you can't then that's also ice water in the ears yeah always stimulates eye movement really it's okay. called the ocular vestibular reflex i don't even know how someone came up with thinking about that but mm, you're, you're some prankster you're just stimulating the areas that control balance in the ear and that that will cause an eye movement but if your brainstem is not intact it won't work uh, you want to make sure that there's no facial movement when you give them pain. The gag reflex is gone and the cough reflex is also gone. So we could test that by doing suctioning and things like that. So if any of these are still like, let's say there is, you know, the eyes and the ears, these tests don't work. But if somebody does have a cough reflex, you're like, okay, they're still alive. Exactly. Exactly. You okay. have to have all these things. Even though they may have compromised brainstem exactly. function. So you yeah, wouldn't okay. say that that person, I would say they have a severe brain injury, but they're not neurologically dead. Okay. And then you go into different conversations. You don't start talking exactly. about end of life or anything. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You would. Yeah, exactly. Now, a family in a situation like that where, say, everything was present or absent but the cough reflex, that's still a pretty bad sign, right? So again, mm. you'd have discussions like that, as you said. And then you do something called the apnea test, where basically they're connected to a breathing tube, right? Because that's what's keeping them alive. And then you essentially disconnect them from the breathing tube and watch to see if they're able to breathe on their own. It's a bit more complicated mm -hmm. than that, but that's basically what we do. And that's it. So you do all those tests, which you can see other than that apnea test where you disconnect the breathing tube and you measure their carbon dioxide levels. It's all at the bedside, as we say. I'm doing things to you to see if you're brain dead. There's no scans. There's no testing like that. That's mm -hmm. it. And that's how you can determine if someone is neurologically dead. And sadly, of course, I've had to do this many times for children and teenagers. Awful, awful. So, okay, this is fine. So the family didn't want to do that. So then why were there other tests that were done? So sometimes if you're not sure, you can do other tests. So this is the, the nerve stimulation test. That is a test where you stimulate the nerves, like in your arms or legs, and you can measure a response in the brain. You don't need to have 
that be abnormal to diagnose with someone with brain death. You don't have to do that test at all. But they did it probably to help try and convince the family. And that sounds like that was abnormal. The other thing they did, if you remember, Ali, when you're reading this case, they did an MRI scan around May 31st. And after that MRI scan, they said that was the date that he died. So what did that show in the immigrant? How would you know based on an MRI scan? So you can do an MRI. You can also do what's called a nuclear medicine scan where you look for blood flow going to the brain. The way our brain works and our body, but mainly our brain is, if it's the way I think about it is, if it's not worth, if the body thinks it's not worth sending blood flow to an organ, it will just stop doing it. Right. Mm. This isn't that's not quite true, but that's a, an easy way to think about it. It's like the tree, it's a tree metaphor. Some yeah. No, actually it's the opposite. In a tree, if some branch is getting weak, the tree focuses on that branch and then to the expense of the rest of the tree. Right. So this, so this our bodies are not trees. So basically yes. if you see no f blood flow to the brain, it means it's a lost cause. And mm. I'm assuming based on what I read that when they did the MRI scan, they saw no blood flow to the brain and they said, okay, that, then you're definitely dead. There's nothing going on above your neck. And so plus all the other reflexes that weren't there and the other testing. So that's basically it. And so you can see why this may be controversial because it's not, like you said, your heart stopping. His heart, Archie's heart was beating the whole time up until the very end, right? other than when mm -hmm. he had his cardi cardiac arrest. So there could be this difficulty in appreciating that there's a different way for death to be determined for, the, for these patients. So a couple of questions about this Archie Battersby case. Every time I say Archie, you have a dog named Archie, and I feel like I'm going to say it and he's going to bark in the distance or something. But this particular case, I wanted to know what was the reaction in the UK? Yeah. What was the general public feeling about? I'm sure it was divided. It is in often these cases. And often it's it's based on, you know, people who were supportive of the family, who wanted everything done, and the family was appealing to all these different courts and to the UN. They're like, you cannot withdraw care on somebody, you know, if the family doesn't want to. Right? That that's the argument. The counter argument is, which is what the doctors were saying, is that no, this person's dead, right? You don't like, what are you withdrawing care on? Like, the, the person has died. So it actually, the, a lot of doctors will say, you know, it's cruel to continue this because you're just supporting a lifeless body with no cognition or anything like that. And so you, you see these kind of things go back and forth. And again, we're not talking a situation like, do you remember Terry Schiavo? I do. I do. I went on a little bit of a Terry Schiavo, you know, down the rabbit hole of, of that case as well yesterday. Yeah. So that was a person who she actually had a eating disorder and ended up with a cardiac arrest due to some imbalances caused by the eating disorder. And this was probably, when do you think, Ali, like in the 90s, probably? Yeah. Yeah. And it was the initial medical crisis was in February of 1990 okay, when yeah. she collapsed in her Right. Her and home. so yeah. she was left not brain dead, first of all. She was in a persistent vegetative state from what the public, again, was said and the press was saying. And there was an argument about whether care should be continued or not. Uh, mm -hmm. I believe it was her husband 
Yeah, the that's the thing. Right in the family, this was a, a you know, never mind the general public's sort of you know conflict of opinions. Terry Schiavo's parents were very much in favor of uh, continuing care indefinitely, and her husband was not. So it was so, uh, yeah. Again, you can see that there's some slight differences. First of all, she was not brain dead. That I think is pretty well established. So she was not dead, which is different than Archie's case. Secondly. This was not physicians versus a family. It was family mm. versus family. Very, very difficult situation. And, you know, I, I don't know. It, it would be just be a horrible situation to be in. But I remember this case, people don't remember who weren't alive in the 90s. This was in the news every day. So yeah. much so, I remember this. I think it was the cover of a magazine. I think it was People magazine. It may not have been People. It may have been Time. But Mother Teresa, who, you know, I mean, amazing Mother Teresa died the same time Terry Schiavo did. The front cover was Terry Schiavo. And you know how they have that little corner, like a little corner at the top right saying what's what else is in this issue? Uh, Mother, Mother Teresa, Teresa dies. What? Unbelievable. But, you know, they mm. knew what was selling. They knew what was newsworthy. And this idea. So I think a very basic thing that people might say is, oh, you know, this is death squads. It's, it's, it's withdrawing care on people who are still alive and things like this. This is unethical. That's what a lot of people would say. But in the medical neurology field, it's different, especially in these types of cases where like the person is brain dead. And listen, like I haven't had this type of situation where the family disagreed. Like they usually understand the, the severe consequences. But I don't know if you want to get into this now. There's a reason why the neurologic determination of death has become so important in medicine. And it's not just because of determining a different way to die. And, and you know, it's, it's because of organ donation. Yeah. So we'll share this obviously in the, uh, in the links as well, the, this article in the New Yorker about the case of Jahi McMath, which you may or may not have heard about the fact that you have not heard about is cloaked in the, you know, the case itself because she is a young black girl. You know, this is part of the article itself. I don't know. The whole case starts with that, you know, that, that her color probably unproven, but probably dictated the care or lack thereof that she got. Certainly that's strongly felt by her family. So let's just talk about this case because it's this article came out about three or four years ago in the New Yorker. It's by Rachel Aviv. This is one of the best articles I've ever read sure, about sure. the field of neurology I will, I will tell people it's quite long, even for a New Yorker article, supremely interesting. I think I've proven to our listeners, I don't have, you know, attention span, much of a brain. I was, you know, captured by this article kind of the whole way through, really. So she has a sort of similar story, perfectly well young lady in December 2013, basically went to have her tonsils removed. We will do another episode on sleep apnea. Sleep apnea in adults is often caused by being overweight, large neck, you know, diameter, but in kids, it's often due to large tonsils and adenoids. So you can do surgery on that. You sleep better, less snoring, more rested, you know. So, and this is a type of surgery that's done every day, right? And just one warning to, not a warning, but all, and no surgery is benign, right? This is a perfect example of that. People say, oh, tonsils, but I've seen patients who've had brain death because just as a complication from tonsils coming out, who had a hypoxic injury. I've seen it with circumcision. You know, excess bleeding from circumcision. Good Lord. And, okay. And, and then the patients died. So 
again, these are rare things. Most surgeries go fine. We have expert anesthesiologists taking care of you, but nothing, no surgery is ever benign. And if you can avoid having surgery, if it's not necessary, that's probably a good idea or a sedation because it's always possible. Anyway, she had her tonsils removed. She kind of had a sore throat afterwards uh, and she seemed to be awake after the surgery, but then began spitting up blood and then increasing blood loss, low oxygen levels eventually led to a cardiac arrest, transferred to the ICU. And because of the significant blood loss and lack of oxygen supplied to the brain was felt to be brain dead. As you mentioned, Ali, in this article, the family is African-American, as you say, and there's a lot of distrust even early on. They think one of the reasons why her symptoms and bleeding were ignored for so long was because of her race. Certainly the family mm-hmm. feels that. And, you know, I think people are well aware that there is a distrust in the African-American community about physicians and medicine as a whole. We've seen that over the COVID-19 pandemic with decreased uptake of of vaccines and things like that. And, you know, this is a community that has been persecuted over the years, and especially with medical things. We've talked about the Tuskegee Airmen, where they watched these men with untreated syphilis just to see what happened, what the course of of syphilis would be. Sure, sure, sure. When you've done experiments on, on human beings in the 20th century, that's a problem, right? And people are not going to forget this. So that is baked into this story, right? You, you can't separate it. That is part of what's going on. So basically, she in a similar situation was declared neurologically dead, and they wanted to discontinue treatment. And you know, Ali, you can just read between the lines in this article, right? There were communication issues from an early point between the physicians and the family, right? Like, I think it's pretty clear. And if you, again, this is just a message to the physicians, like communication is so important. The message that you that you deal with, with families, and if you're not sensitive to these things at the beginning, things can go off the rails in a very significant way, like in this case. So basically, they felt that she was brain dead. They got an external expert to come in from Stanford, also said that they were brain dead. And the family appealed again to the courts and they wanted the patient to continue with like a tracheostomy, which is like a breathing tube in the neck, right? You've seen those. And a feeding tube in the stomach. The hospital didn't want to do that. And so basically there was this controversy about what to do. And so Essentially, they decided to declare her dead because that's what was, uh, that's what had been going on. And the family then received custody of the body. And they immediately took the patient to an undisclosed location. She got the tracheostomy, breathing tube in the neck. She got the tube in the stomach and then was taken away to New Jersey, right? And that's where she lived the rest of her life. So why New Jersey there, Ali? Did you get this from the article? Yeah, of course. I mean, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about different states, different regions have different rules around these things. New York and New Jersey, they probably went to New Jersey for, you know, financial reasons, I imagine, just less expensive to live in New Jersey, do not take patients off of uh, life support if their brain continues to work for religious reasons, right? It's the religion part that's important. Yeah, basically you can, like if you don't agree based on your religious beliefs with a diagnosis of brain death, it's off the table basically. Right. And I think she said as a Christian, 
I will believe my daughter is dead when God tells me so, and that will happen when her brain no longer works. Right. And so in New York and New Jersey, these laws were written to accommodate the Orthodox Jews, because if you look at the Talmud, it's one interpretation is that the presence of breath signifies life. Right. So that's what you're saying. So that's why she was transferred there. And she was in a Catholic hospital in New Jersey for a bit and then was kind of transferred to an apartment with around the clock nursing care. Estimated cost of care was $150,000 a week. These are the two big things, right? The cost of care. Actually, it's more than two. It's the cost of care for the person who's being kept alive that other people will mm -hmm. often look at. It is the opportunity cost, right? Where those resources could be allotted right. instead, right? Somebody else. And then there's also this issue of the organ transplant, which I'd love for you to talk about that, about this, I don't know his first name, Harry or Henry, Henry Beecher. Beecher and, right. Right. I found that very, yeah. very interesting. And like I always say, a good New Yorker article is three quarters about the story of this little girl who sadly be, uh, was brain dead and, and the conflict with the family. Then the last quarter is a little twist to the story. And that's never leave a New Yorker article early. early. Exactly. So it's going to get better. This guy, Henry Beecher, was a bioethicist at Harvard. And basically, he created a committee to look into this idea where is there another way to define death? So the committee was made of people in Boston and in the Harvard area. There were 10 doctors, a lawyer, a historian, and a theologian. So that sounds pretty good. And they did a report that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, which basically argued that death should not just be cardiac death, but the irreversible destruction of the brain should also be considered death. And they cited two reasons. One is to relieve the burden on families and hospitals, because if we're saying, no, your heart's beating, you should be kept alive, that's very difficult for many families. Not necessarily the families we talked about today, but difficult in general. And the burden of hospitals, as you said, the financial, the beds in the hospital and things like that. And because you're providing care to someone who's never going to recover. But they also did it for another reason, which is that if you have this new criteria for neurologic determination of death, you could be able to obtain organs for transplantation. And now we're talking about the 60s and 70s when organ transplantation was kind of booming and has just increased over time. So... If you look at and you say, well, what's the evidence? As well, what's the evidence for this neurologic determination of death? There's no actual evidence. It was just a bunch of experts getting together. In fact, the author, Rachel Aviv, notes that if you look at this original paper published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, one, yeah. right, there's only one reference in it, one citation, and it's a quote from the Pope. Like a speech from the Pope. Dr. Pope. No, the actual Pope. <laughs> so there's no there's no actual, it was just based on expert opinion. And so this has been certainly criticized over time. So this one philosopher described this concept of brain death, this guy Peter Singer said, it's a concept so desirable in its consequences that it is unthinkable to give up because of the organ donation. And it's so mm -hmm. shaky on its foundations that it can scarcely be supported. And he describes this new criteria for death as an ethical choice masquerading as medical fact. Yikes. Crazy stuff. Crazy, crazy stuff. A whole new world opened up in my mind here. I did not think 
Organ donation is just something you check off on your license. You know what I mean? That's like I did not think about the need for organs, the industry and the machinery that, you know, requires it and needs it and how we usher people out. Also, you know, on a personal note, if this was of interest, because my father, you know, he was in a comatose state in the last few weeks of his life and we had to make a decision in 2011 to remove him from that. And we had that talk with hospital staff. You know, they pulled us into a room in a board meeting and said, these are the facts. Very easy to do for a family like ours, because the next step for my father was that he was going to be on a heart and lung machine. So he could be kept alive, but he would never leave the hospital. My father being who he was, you know, that was not the way he wanted to go out. You hear your father say things, if I ever have a stroke and, you know, you put a gun in my head and, you know, it's, you, it's a very, very different situation with a child. And I wouldn't even want to, you know, I wouldn't even want to really think about that. That's, it's awful with a, with a man who is, you know, yeah, 72 is early, but you know, he loved tobacco for most of his life more than he loved his own children. He'd had a good life and, you know, the end was near anyway. He was given a certain amount of time to live, but yeah, with kids. And I couldn't help but think in both these cases, you know, with Archie Battersby, I think there's a guilt that has to operate when you're a parent why did I let my son sort of be on the computer alone? And, you know, it's, it's this, this feeling of like, what kind of parent would let their kid or, or not know that their kid was doing these or not, you know, educate their kid to be like, don't do these challenges. They can be so dangerous. So the, the guilt there must be enormous. And in Jahi McMath's case, her mother was quite public about, not not quite public, but she spoke about her own guilt because she encouraged her daughter to get her tonsils mm-hmm, removed, mm-hmm. right? So when you told your daughter, do if you had not said, I mean, that, I'm sure in many cases, that's what propels these parents. It's not just about my child is not dead. It's also about this can't be the way it goes because I had a role in this. And it's so, so difficult to read about. You see that, Ali, and, and again, we can talk about this in a different episode. I've seen children who had home births where there were complications. And it's like the guilt sometimes from that home birth. People don't want to accept necessarily sometimes that their decision may have contributed to this very devastating outcome to their children. And sometimes that anger comes out in other ways towards the medical profession, you know, towards others, their spouse or things like that. Mm-hmm. So you can't underestimate this idea of guilt. Again, we are surmising this in a lot of ways for these two cases. Like we don't know for sure. I think Jai McMath's mother has said that and said that in the article, this idea of guilt. I'm not sure about Archie's mother, but you can't discount that. Mm-hmm. So, it's difficult. Now, now, Jahi died a few years ago, so as in cardiac death, uh, several years ago. But some interesting things happened, and this is at the end of this New Yorker article, which, again, highly recommend that you read. There was a question that she was actually responsive. Like, the mother would ask her to do things with a certain finger or a certain hand or a foot, and there was a delay of, like, 10 seconds. And then she would do it. And they got another expert, another neurologist kind of review her case and review videotapes. And they're like, I don't think that they're brain dead. The other thing that happened is she would have vaginal bleeding because she was getting to the age to be menstruating. Mm -hmm. Now, control of menstruation happens not just in the uterus, but 
it's a hormonal axis that involves the brain. So if your brain is destroyed, how is this possible? Right? You just said the brain is not functioning. Mm -hmm. How is that possible? And so it raises a lot of ethical questions about this concept of brain death. Well, this is what I was looking at. There's the ethical component, but then there's also a medical component. Like clearly we need different criteria or whatever you want to call it, standards or tests for what death is. And we don't have that because she was not only menstruating, but lifting a finger when told to lift a finger, lifting her toes, lifting her, you know, moving things at her mother's command. Yeah, the delay, <laughs> of course, there's going to be a delay. 10 seconds is nothing. And at that time, one doctor said, this is a seriously disabled teen, but also a very much alive teen. Mm -hmm. And then another doctor said, she's completely dead and none of this yeah. means anything. Yeah. So yeah. how do you, I mean, this is a, you're both medical professionals looking at the exact same person at the exact same time, giving completely different, yeah. completely different, yeah. diametrically opposed. Arguments for the movement is that there's something called the Lazarus effect. I don't know if you saw it in the article, they alluded to it, where basically yeah, you could have what are called spinal reflexes. So even without any brain function or actually being dead, you could have spinal reflexes, which are just acting kind of at the level of the spinal cord, not going higher to the brain. And those can still be active after you're dead. And you can have movements of your limbs. Sometimes people even sit up afterwards. And so if you look at the Lazarus effect, you'll see lots of examples that could be very scary, but we know that that's not the case. Now, that's usually immediately after death or, you know, but these movements that you're talking about for Jahi were like years afterwards, they would see this. So I'm not mm -hmm. quite sure you could explain all this with the Lazarus effect, but that's another possibility. So, But also her heart rate would increase right. and decrease yeah. based on certain things. A lot of people talking over her at her bedside, heart rate goes up. Her mother, what was she doing? Singing lullabies where you could see her. She was responding to external things as well, mm -hmm. clearly, right? So, so it leaves us in a very difficult situation. I mean, for me as a neurologist, just thinking about neurology, it's like the example you gave at the beginning. Like, what if you weren't completely brainstem dead? What if you still had your cough or gag reflex, but everything else was absent, you know? For me, the difference between that and having that presence, you can say one is dead, one's not. It's so bad what's going on in terms of the extent of your brain injury. There's very little difference between those to me, right? You technically can't, if someone has a cough, you can't technically say that they're dead, but I think this is a very bad situation no matter what. So for me, it's less of an issue. For my colleagues who are involved in organ transplant, it becomes a lot more ethically dicey, right? Because if there's a question that you're not really dead, even if you fulfill these criteria for brain death, then what are we doing? Like, is that's a very slippery slope in terms of saying, because so you're going from harvesting organs from someone who's dead to harvesting organs from someone who just has a severe brain injury. Like that is, it's tough. And I'll be honest with you, Ollie, I don't really know the answers, but that's why I like this article written by a non-physician, but it's made me think a lot about, you know, this idea of what it means to be dead, what consciousness means and things like that. Yeah. Given that death comes for us all at some point, I think it is a valuable read just for, you know, something to think about for yourself and for 
you know, what death will mean for you or for your loved ones. And might be best to have that planned out ahead of time and written out where it's possible. Obviously with kids, it's not as possible. But. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ali. And I think that's a good place to close things on. If you are an adult, you definitely need to have these directives because this is the problem that happens. And the Terry Shavro case, which we said is different, she was not brain dead. So it was a different case, but that conflict between what people would want for themselves and what they would not want. Again, as you said, these two cases, they're children, it's so much more difficult. But for an adult, if you could just be clear what you would have wanted, like your dad, you just knew your dad well enough that he has no way he would want to be on this life support any longer. Like that is not, you know, what he'd be interested in. So he was favoring death over life when he lost his driver's license. Like he was having these basically fainting effectively. He wasn't getting enough. He had, you know, lung disease and he had an oxygen tank. And so he would sometimes faint from not enough oxygen. And so his license was taken away. And he even said, then I'd rather be dead. So it's pretty clear. He doesn't want to be fed applesauce in a hospital bed for the rest of his life or be fed from, you know, through a tube and this kind of thing. But, and as I, you know, and in that case, with all due respect to my dad, who I loved very much, nobody wanted those organs. He worked hard to pollute those. Right. So that, that was also not part of the discussion or thought process at all, you know, so as I say, as difficult as it was, fairly simple, not a loaded, loaded case like, like it is with a, with a young person. So that's our episode for today. A bit of a heavier episode, not as much humor as we as we normally <laughs> that's your have. Fault. That's, that's right. That's your right. Fault, that's right. Bro. But you know, I did want to talk about this. It's something I think about a lot, and I did want to bring this up, this topic, and talk about it. Hopefully, people found this interesting. Definitely check out that article we were talking about in the New Yorker. It's a good good summary of what's going on, and it will give you some insight into the Archie Battersby case. That is our show for today. We've got some great episodes coming up. I mean. Entertainment will we will be back. This yes, is not the new that's format. Right, that's right. By yeah. the way, there's a lot to talk about in in entertainment and in. We have some really exciting interviews coming up with some big names. It's going to be yeah. uh, really good. And then, of course, we will have a preview at some point in September for Ali's new book. Is there bacon? Is there bacon in, in heaven? heaven? It's a good question. We want to know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, I guess you probably can't answer that. I can't, and it's better that I can't because yeah, that means right. I'm alive. That's right. Not in heaven. Yeah. So we'll do a preview for that. That is September 27th. The book comes out, right, Ali? Mm -hmm. Right? That's right. Is there anything yeah, else going yeah. on? No, you can pre order that book. Amazon, Indigo, independent booksellers, wherever your books are sold, you can go and get the book in your hands early, and you'll get it that week of September 27th. And that's it. What else is going on? Just for Laughs Toronto. I will be part of that. Our sitcom on CBC, Run the Burbs, starts filming again in September. The second season will be uh, on television in January 2023, which is closer than I think mm -hmm, it is. Mm -hmm. And remember, reach out to us. Let us know what you guys thought about this episode. Again, slightly different episode with just a more serious medical topic, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Reach out to us on social media, drvcomedian on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are everywhere. Also... Remember to leave us a review, five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out. 
And finally, remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they are not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye.